awesome. You know, I'm just stubborn enough to keep working with this technology until I finally get it figured out. So if we have an issue today, just bear with me. One of these days, we'll conquer it. Happy 5th of July, by the way. I, I love to see the multicolored uh, red, white, and blues uh, we have here. We have a whole row of flags and, and, and T-shirts, and we have all kinds of really, really cool ties. Look around today. People are wearing the tie that they really don't get to wear very often. And so today, the red, white, and the blue. And uh, Today, I wore my colors, if you will, my red, white, and blue. Uh, you see, the other option I had in my closet was a New England Patriots jersey, but I thought you probably wouldn't want that. So I would say I made the better choice in all of this. Yes, yes. But we are in this remarkable time of the year where we do take time to celebrate our nation's birthday. Anybody know how old America is these days? 239 years old. And I'm afraid the old gal is starting to show her age just a little bit, don't you think? Poor America. It seems like we started with such robustness. We had a group of people up there in Philadelphia in Independence Hall uh, deciding that we're tired of tyranny, we're tired of bondage, we're tired of taxation without representation. We want to throw off the yoke that has been laid on us as a country from the foreign powers, if you will, Britain way across the ocean. And so they struck up a revolution. And they fought, and many of them died, and they won their political freedom so that this nation could be known for its life, its liberty, and its pursuit of happiness. Yes. And guess what? They got it. And we have enjoyed it for so, so many years. Except one of the problems with this liberty that we have as a nation, an unintended consequence, if you would, That unintended consequence is this. When people are given freedom without any restraint, the heart naturally runs to every form of desire it wants, and ultimately, it ends up in another form of bondage. And that bondage is to our own sin and our own selfishness. And so today we live in a nation with, if you will, freedom, but not freedom from ourselves. So in a very real way, what we need today in America is another revolution. Amen? Don't go get your gun. The kind of freedom we need today is not a political freedom. It is a moral and spiritual freedom that can only come with the tool, the weapon, the love of God found in this thing called the gospel of God's grace. So today I want to share with you, and it doesn't look like it's going to work for me, so guys, go ahead. It's just on the keyboard, just on the keyboard, advance to the right, right key. If you would do that for me, that would be awesome. So throughout our morning, I'm going to be telling you to go ahead and advance, although it looks like it all went very dark. No, okay, there you go, that's fine, you, you got it, you, you're doing really well, thank you. So we are working our way through this thing called the book of Galatians, and Galatians is about what? One more time, it's about what? Yes, it's about freedom, but it's a particular kind of freedom. It is freedom in Christ, 
from sin and from selfishness to ultimately be able to turn our affections on others in the name of Jesus Christ. So it is a form of freedom, a freedom that is spiritual and moral, the very thing our country needs today. So it is freedom in Christ to love others. Take your Bibles today. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, please. Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, as we consider together the words of the Apostle Paul, which will take this message of freedom, which will take this truth of the gospel and and encapsulate it in a very beautiful way today. So we are considering this book called Galatians, and the Apostle Paul is beginning by giving this thing called a personal appeal. Advance it, please. He's beginning with a personal appeal. Uh, in chapters 1 and 2, where he says this, My gospel is the gospel of grace, the only true good news given by God. Next, please. And today we're in this section, which is the theological or the doctrinal appeal, where he's saying this, My gospel is the gospel of grace, and it is only experienced by faith, not by obedience to the law. Advance, please. The law cannot bring life. Only faith can. Advance one more as we get into this next section where the Old Testament scriptures themselves express this truth. One more advance, and then we're going to read some scripture together. So today, we're in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 14. I'll read these. We'll take a moment to pray together. And then there is such important truth here today. In fact, uh, a lot of commentators call these four verses the most important verses in the book of Galatians. I think you'll know why by the time we're done. Here we go. The Apostle Paul writing, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise through faith. Notice the emboldened and italicized words, Those are quotes from the Older Testament as the Apostle Paul tries to make it clear that the teaching of faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone has always been and always will be the only saving message of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5, And then lastly, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. He's laying it on thick. He wants us to understand how this thing really works. Let's pray together, and from there we will venture forth. Father, thank you again uh, for this wonderful book. And Father, I thank you that in many ways, uh, the book of Galatians, the writing that uh, the Apostle Paul had given to these churches, has been very liberating to me. It has helped me to appreciate so much 
the marvelous grace of our dear God. It helps me to appreciate so much all that Jesus Christ fully accomplished. It helps me so much to understand who I really am in light of all this truth. And what it does is it magnifies our God. May that be what happens today. Please, Father, may Jesus Christ be lifted up. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Under a curse, Christ redeemed us from the curse, becoming a curse. Cursed is everyone. Curse, 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 curse. I thought you weren't supposed to curse in church. We're not supposed to do that, right? What the Apostle Paul is doing in verses 10 through 14 is he's actually setting it in a, in a juxtaposition to what he's already talked about, we talked about last week, how that it is by faith alone that Abraham was declared righteous before God. And so the blessing of Abraham comes to those who come to God by simple faith. And so he's saying that that is the way it's always been, but now he's tackling the issue of where does the law fit? How does the law of God fit in this context? And he's saying, as opposed to the blessing which comes from faith, the law is all about a curse, a curse, a curse, a curse. So what we need to do is kind of unpack this section just a little bit and and look at some of the terms, and as we isolate them, I think it will help you to appreciate the implications uh, that, that are here. And so in verse 10, he simply says, as Paul explains for us the curse, for all who rely on works of the law, they are under a curse. Now, he's talking about the law, the law. So it's the definite article with the word law. And when you have that arrangement, what it almost always means is the Mosaic law. In fact, uh, it also talks about the book of the law. Now, um, the book of the law is what is known as the Torah. The Torah is really the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so the law of Moses is the first five books of our Bible. That was given as a gift to the nation of Israel. And what they did when they received the law is they began to scan it and, and codify it and and begin to kind of build categories to understand exactly what it is God wants from his people. And so what they ended up doing is they ended up putting together, if you will, 613 individual commands. And so this, dear ones, is the law of Moses. 613 commands that they were able to isolate and codify. Of those, 248 are what we would call positive commands, or do this. 365 of these commands are what we would call prohibitions. Do not do this. And so God gave them the law. Five books of Moses, they went through and codified them and came up with 613 commandments. And they began to isolate them in areas of of civil law. It deals with the issue of governance and how to deal with people under the theocracy that God was creating with the nation of Israel. So there are civil laws, commands. 
There's also ceremonial laws or commands that are are in this as well. And they tell people how to properly do Yahweh worship. And so there are civil laws that oversee the workings of the nation. There are uh, ceremonial laws which deal with how to offer sacrifices and all that stuff. And then there's also a kind of another category that we could call the commands or the commandments, of which the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus chapter 20, are part of those. And that is what would be called the moral law of God. So there is this civil, there is this ceremonial, and then there are the commandments or the moral law. All of that is 613 individual commandments which God had given to the nation of Israel. And you know, the law is perfect. The law is just. The law is holy. The law is good. The law is actually an expression of the character of God that he gave to his people. It was a blessing. It was a gift given to the nation of Israel is what the law was. So this is the law. Now, let's continue to understand what he's saying here. So, this is the law. It is the code of Moses. It is good. It is holy. It is spiritual. He goes on to say this, For all who rely on the works of the law... Now, Paul is talking about to those people uh, who have chosen to embrace the law and by obedience seek to become pleasing to God through it. A kind of a modern-day correlation would be this. I'm doing the best I can do. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm seeking to obey the Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm trying to be a really moral guy. Correlation to today, if you would. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under a... What's the word? What? A curse? Yeah. The word curse is a legal term. Uh, It is an official pronouncement of guilty, of condemnation. It is a sentence that is passed, and the sentence is death. Now, you may be thinking, wait a second. This just doesn't seem to quite make sense to me. Uh, So we have this thing called the law of God. It's in the Bible. God gave it. It's an expression of his holy character. Yep, it's good. It's just. It's holy. And if I try to keep its requirements as a way of being approved by God, I'm cursed to death. Yeah, you got it. Good job. I knew you get it. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. Why? Why? Well, he goes on to actually quote Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26. Notice what he says. For, and this is a subordinate conjunction, it is used in Scripture to introduce or explain something. Why, Paul? For it is written, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed, legally guilty and condemned by God, be everyone. How many? Everyone who does not abide by, carefully and continually keep, all things. How many things? All things written in the book of the law to do them. Whoa. Whoa. Wait a minute. You see, the law is holy, righteous, and just. And so God gave it to his people in order for them to have the proper administration of of the uh, people and in order to properly approach God. 
But the law was never intended by God to become, if you will, a checklist. Let's see. Uh, we got 613 of these critters. How am I doing? Uh, you know, uh, to know that God exists. Exodus 20 and verse 2 in Deuteronomy 5, 6. Got that. I'm good. I got that one. I got one. Uh, let's see. Um, do not blaspheme. Uh, most of the time I'm good with that one. Uh, to love God. Yeah, I love God. Most of the time I love God. Most of them I show that I love. Well, okay, yeah, let's keep moving. Uh, honor the old and the wise. I like that one as I get older, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think I do okay there. Let's get down here. Oh, no. Uh, do not wrong anyone in speech. Do not bear a grudge. And that's just a half a dozen out of 613. You see... This is what the Pharisees were doing, though. The Pharisees were going through, and they were saying, got it, got it, almost got it, got it. I got it better than he does. You see, I'm doing this one better than he is, and uh, I'm doing this one better than you are. And what happens when you create a checklist out of the law is we end up with this thing called pride. I end up seeing myself in light of this standard and you in light of this standard, and I'm better at this than you are, so that gives me the privilege to kind of be proud about myself and to actually look down on others and to think I'm superior to them because I'm keeping the law better than you are. And this is Phariseeism. This is what the the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, man, we are so good. We are so righteous. We're not like those sinners over there. But the law was never given to be a checklist to say, I'm getting morally improved, so I must be more and more in a better standing with God because I'm more moral than you. They missed the point. And the point is simply, simply this. Either you perfectly obey all things or you are guilty of all. It was never given as a checklist to see how good I can be. It was given as a standard of God that the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all come short of God's glorious standard. Ultimately, the law was designed to show us our need for God, not how good I can be before God. And Paul was saying that if you don't keep every last one of these details perfectly, you're under a curse. You are condemned to death. And so this was a radical shift in thinking as to uh, how people were actually seeking to use the law. You know, I actually like the way kind of that James put it. If somebody has their Bible, if you would turn to James chapter 2 for a second, I'm going to ask you to read a verse of Scripture for me. Uh, James chapter 2, please, and uh, verse 10. So somebody grab that verse, and when you get it, raise your hand. Who's got it? Okay, could you please read James 2.10 for me? Okay. So whoever keeps the whole law 
and yet stumbles in one point. Does somebody else have a different version that reads a little differently? No? Okay, that's the King James. Yes. Okay. So whoever keeps the whole law of God, it is a whole. Whoever keeps the whole law of God and yet offends it in merely one point, in one place. Let's see. Gossip? Oh. Uh, (laughs) I got somebody's attention. If you don't like loud noises, I suggest you put your fingers in your ears. This is James's point. You see, the law is a whole. It is a whole. And as a whole, you can't piecemeal, keep this, don't keep that, do okay here, and don't do okay there. Because if you offend the law in one point, you are guilty of how much? All of the law. We have broken the law of God. And so that's exactly what Paul is trying to get these people to appreciate and understand. The law was never given as a moral standard to, quote-unquote, live up to. It was given to ultimately reveal to people their need of a relationship with the living God because none of us can keep the law perfectly. And so what it ends up becoming is this, is that the law of God is used by God in Romans chapter 3 where it says this, that all people will have their mouths stopped because the law condemns us to death. It reveals our true heart's condition. And so when you actually understand how the law was meant to be used, this is harder than I thought it would be. (laughs) When you actually understand how the law was intended to be used, the law is in many ways kind of a, um, a device used by God to simply reveal a condition. Uh, how many of you have ever had an MRI? Yeah, or, or uh, uh, just a plain x-ray. Yeah, the, the MRI or the x-ray is merely there as a diagnosing tool. It is something that merely tells you the truth that is already there. And so as you go into this machine and it, it, it shows you that you've got a broken arm, how ridiculous would it be to say, I hate that machine. I hate that machine. It broke my arm. Well, no, the machine didn't break your arm. The machine revealed that you have a broken arm, right? And so too with an MRI. And so too with the law of God. The law of God actually scans our soul. And what it reveals to us is, oh my gosh, I am depraved. Oh, my gosh, my heart is desperately wicked. I don't even really understand it. The law of God reveals this truth. So it's a diagnosing tool that God has given us to reveal the truth about ourselves. Now, the law is good at that, don't you think? It puts his finger on us all the time. You've broken this. You've done that wrong. You shouldn't do that. The law is good at what it does. But the law has no capacity to help us. And it has no capacity to bring healing. It can only reveal the truth. Just like an MRI machine. You go into it, it says, oh my gosh, you've got got heart disease. Well, that machine can't fix heart disease. It merely reveals the truth. So too with the law of God. So now, with that in mind, the law of God is only something that ultimately curses us 
because it is us who is the problem. The law is perfect and righteous and just and beautiful. We're not. That's the point. It reveals the truth about ourselves. So Paul has explained the curse at this point. And now what he's going to do is examine the cure. Now that we are under conviction, we're in this place of condemnation because the law has scanned our soul and shown it to be um, not right with God. So now he examines the cure. Verses 11 through 14. Notice how these read. So Paul begins with the obvious. Verse 11. Now it is evident... It's obvious that no one is to be justified. The idea is to be declared righteous or to be made right before God by the law. It is not given for that purpose, and it can only condemn us. It cannot heal us. Because the law actually curses us, in verse 10. Because the law of works and faith are mutually exclusive. That's what verse 12 is all about. It says this, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18.15 there. So the law, is actually, it actually curses us. The works of law and faith are exclusively different things. And then in verse 11, he says this, For the righteous shall live by faith, because faith is the only means a person will ever be made right with God. That's what he's trying to get us to see here. And so he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where indeed the righteous shall live by faith. And so again, he's trying to say this. From the time of Abraham all the way up till now, it has always only been by faith in Christ that you are saved and redeemed. You are given the righteousness of Christ as a direct result of simple faith. Never by works of law. Never by human effort. Never by our own trying to be moral and good. That will never do. You offend it in one point, you've broken it all, and it leaves us in a place of condemnation, not in a place of justification. Why? Why? Verse 13. You can forward this one, please. Because, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ. Christ alone is the one who can redeem us from the curse of the law, which is death. Christ and Christ alone, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. It is Christ and Christ alone. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Christ. And Christ alone redeemed. It literally means to buy back or set a slave free by paying a price. What is the price he paid? His life. He gave his life for ours. It goes on to actually say that. By becoming a curse for us. This is substitutionary atonement. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and Jesus died on the tree, if you will, to pay the debt of our curse, which is condemnation and death, because our hearts are deceitful and wicked, and we are depraved. That's what the law says. That's the role of the law. That's how it works. Go ahead, one more. Let's summarize all of this. So... Now, this is uh, verse 14, so that, this is purpose construction, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. And what was the blessing of Abraham? 
It was by faith alone in the promised coming one, by God's grace alone, he was given the righteousness of God. That's the blessing of Abraham. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. He is the one who enters into us and regenerates us and inhabits us as believers through what? That's it. It is only, only on the basis of faith. You try to work for it, you try to earn it, you try to be good enough for it, and you won't get it. God gives the gift of his son, the gift of righteousness in him, the gift of forgiveness and the gift of being flawless in him, only on the basis of acknowledging our sinfulness and coming to the person of Jesus Christ and wrapping our arms around him. That's it. You try to earn it any other way, you try to get it any other way, you don't get it. Because God will not share his glory with any other. And if his son's death on the cross was insufficient for you, then there's no redemption for you. That is the truth of Scripture. Go ahead and forward it one more. All right. So we moved through that pretty rapidly. We have a few minutes left. My goal in walking through this message of the gospel, this realization that we're condemned by the law, but Christ has set us free from the curse by dying for us, because I want to make application, if you will, into our lives in several different ways. And so there's some questions here by way of application. And the first question is for those who have not yet embraced Jesus Christ by faith. So if you would forward that one, please. And my question to you is simply this. Have you come to that place in your life where you have been set free from the penalty of your sin by the gospel of God's grace? Go ahead, one. Listen to what the Bible says. This is my favorite verse in all of the Bible. If I have a life verse, this would be it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. It is all of God. It is all of Christ. And my part in all of this is simply to embrace him by faith. And so, Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin, which is condemnation and death. That's the penalty. And when he bore your penalty on the cross and he took your punishment, what he did was he secured a full and complete pardon for all your sin. Wow. Only a God could do that. Only a good and gracious and merciful and loving God could do that or would do that or even consider this thing. And our response to that is simply this, to turn from our way, to turn from our sense of truth, to turn from our way of life, to repent, as the Bible says it, to turn from all those things we think and believe and have been doing, leaving it all behind, and simply Embracing him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but through him. Please hear me. Salvation is Jesus plus equals. That's it. If you come with your own sense of good works, if you come with your own sense of morality, if you come with your own sense of, but I'm, look at all the stuff I'm doing. You don't get it. 
It is to take the law and put it up and be condemned by it to death and in this place of condemnation to humble ourselves and say, Savior, save me. That's what it means. That is so not natural. We are people who want to work for what we get, aren't we? We are very much into the doing thing, aren't we? I mean, all of life is built around my performance. I don't get a raise at work. Well, I don't get a raise here, but yeah, no, no. I don't get a raise at work if I do what I do really well. I mean, unless I do what I do really well. You see, everything in life is built on performance, but that doesn't work this way when it comes to the cross. It was Christ's performance, not my performance, that gives me the gift of eternal life. Be careful, lest you come to that day and you be like so many people. Go ahead and advance it one more. Next. File, please. Mm -hmm. Some lying, some stealing, and some acts of kindness here and there. I tried to live a good life. Well, let's see how good. This way. Next. Bio, please. Okay, I admit it. I did a lot of bad things. Yes, I see. But I've done good things, too, you know, to offset the bad things. Like, one time, I cheated on a test, but then I cleaned up trash in the park. Mm-hmm. That should balance out, right? Let's find out. This way. That should have balanced out, right? It should have balanced out. Next. Bio, please. Oh, yeah. I devoted my entire life to making this world a better place. I dug wells in Africa. I donated blood every month. And I ran an orphanage in India. I mean, I just wish I could have done more. Mm-hmm. And is this your subscription? I only read the articles. I, I only read the articles. I only read the articles. Next... My mom goes to church. Was baptized as a baby? Take American Express, right? Next. File, please. Whoa. Somebody's been busy. Well, let's get this over with. Sorry, um, I didn't know he was with you. Okay, step on the scale. Not you. Him. Hey, wait a minute. That is totally not fair. That's why it's called grace. Amen. 
You can forward it one more, please, guys. Thank you. You know, that's a silly little video, and yet I think it emphasizes the truth that when the day comes, many people are going to be terribly shocked and surprised to realize that what they thought was a decent life, a good life, a moral life, will not be sufficient because it takes perfection. And there's only one who had perfection, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it's only those who come to him by simple faith alone that will receive the righteous gift of God found in Jesus Christ. I just want to encourage you that if you have yet to embrace this truth, the Bible seems to be so clear. Today is the day, now is the time. Don't put it off because you have no idea what tomorrow holds or even whether or not the Holy Spirit will continue to strive with you and open your understanding to receive these truths. So right now, wherever you're sitting, if you have yet to embrace Christ with your life and Him alone, apart from all your good works, then right now, where you're sitting with your eyes open, just say, oh God, that's me. I want to be forgiven. So right now I come and I just embrace Jesus Christ and I turn my back on all my efforts at righteousness. I'd love to talk with you more after we're done this morning. So for those who have yet to embrace Christ, have you been set free from the penalty of your sin? Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid your price. He redeemed you. Secondly, if you do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this question. Go ahead and click the uh, thing forward. Are you being set free daily from the power of your sin by the gospel of God's grace? Are you being set free daily from the power of sin in your life by the gospel of God's grace? You see, the Bible is so clear. The very same way we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, simple faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ alone, when we do that, we experience the forgiveness of our sin. The same way we come to him in simple trust with reliance on him is the same way that we continue to go on in the Christian life and grow in him. It is always simply on the basis of building that relationship of trust. And in that process, as he reveals things to us, confessing that sin to him and growing in him in ways that become more like him, to live in love like Jesus Christ. And so, so I guess the question I have to you is this. The Bible Bible says the righteous shall live by faith. And what that means is this. You can go ahead and advance it one again. Isn't this annoying? I'm sorry. Next week we'll work this, this issue out. But you're doing an awesome job up there, guys. Every single day as a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to be preaching the gospel to myself. Seriously. I came to Jesus when I realized my sinfulness. I embraced him by faith. He gave me eternal life. And it began a relationship, a relationship of trust, one that I'm designed to grow in. And the way you grow in it is the same way you came into it, by trust. And every single day, we should go back to the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. By the way, the Lord Jesus, I've realized in reading your word, these things aren't quite right in my life. Lord Jesus, by faith, I come back to you and I ask you to forgive these things and now help me to walk in a way that pleases you and take away this power that sin seems to have in my life. This is what believers are meant to do. We're meant to indeed take on the character of Christ and grow to become like him. That doesn't save us. Faith is what saves us and faith is what grows us in the Christian life. 
And so we proclaim the gospel to those who are lost so that they will find relationship in Christ. But we need to be constantly proclaiming the gospel to ourselves so that we would grow in this relationship and we would find cleansing from sin and that we would discover that Jesus Christ indeed will break the power of canceled sin in our lives and allow us to grow in ways that are holy. This is part of the Christian walk. And I I just want to ask you, when was the last time you and Jesus really got together and had a good talk? When was the last time you just came to Christ and he said, Lord Jesus, thank you. I need you to continue to be my Savior every day. Because there is sin in my life that is hindering me. There is sin in my life that is preventing me from being all that I know you desire your child to be. There is sin, Jesus, that I need you to be at work in my life. And that only happens as we continually preach the gospel, the truth that is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, that we not only come into relationship, but we grow in relationship. Believer, when was the last time you and Jesus had a good heart-to-heart? When was the last time you said, I don't want this prohibitive sin in my life anymore? I want to deal with it. The cross does that. Advance again. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the power of God to salvation and to sanctification. That's what the cross does. That's what the gospel's all about. It sets us free from the penalty of sin. It also sets us free from the power of sin in our lives. And then I'm going to conclude with this final thought. Go ahead and advance it. Believer, are you overcoming the presence of sin in our culture? By the gospel of God's grace. You see, the power of the gospel doesn't just take care of sin's penalty. It doesn't just break sin's power. But it also enables us to live in the presence of a sinful world victoriously. This is what the gospel does. Are you overcoming the presence of sin on a personal level in our culture by the gospel? Now, we're all talking about, we're all twittipated about it, we're all excited about this recent uh, Supreme Court ruling that has recently come out. Yes, I've seen all the postings on Facebook. Yes, I've seen all the horror and difficulty. Yes, I've seen all of this stuff uh, going on out there. And, you know, if I could kind of group the responses of believers, I'd put them in two basic categories. On one hand, some of us are angry, and we're a little antagonistic about the whole thing. And on the other hand, some of us are fearful and don't know what to do with this, and we're anxious about this situation. And you know what? The gospel actually speaks into both those responses very clearly. If you're here today, and what transpired a week ago in the courts has made you angry and made you very antagonistic about what's going on, I have some words from Jesus for you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Here we go. He who is without sin... Throw the first stone. You see, this is the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is this. May we never forget that we are all sinners. And the only way we ever came to a place of knowledge and blessing in Christ is simply by God's grace and goodness. If you earned it, you don't have it. God shined his love on you and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, that we would capture this thought in our hearts, in our minds. Because if we don't, we become the legalist. Their sin's different than mine, and I'm not like that, so I'm better than them. 
That's what happens. We can become so legalistic and we can look down on people and condescending to people, forgetting that we never earned it or deserved it in the first place and our sin is sin too. Does this make sense? The gospel doesn't give us the right to be angry. It doesn't give us the right to be angry. The anger of man will never work the righteousness of God. We do not have that right. I think I've got another one of these guys. Yes, I do. So which sin is yours? Gossip? Is it the sin of lying? Just white lies, you know. Is it uh, the sin of lust? Is it the sin of... You name it. Somebody else's sin may be just a little different than yours. Rather than poking the place you would poke, they poke over here. We are equally condemned under the law of God. And we did nothing to get the gift of righteousness in Christ other than simply believing. That should pull out of our hearts a form of indignation for a different type of sin than we have. And it should make us gracious as we look at other people, hurting for other people, Wounded that other people are manifesting their sin in ways that are going to harm them. That's how we are supposed to look. So if you're angry, I want to let you know the gospel deals with that. It humbles us, and it puts us in a place of gratitude to God and a sense of of, of looking at others as though they have the same need that I have. By the way, it takes just as much grace to save you as it does anyone else. And God was good. He saved you by his grace, and he wants to save them too. So if you're angry and antagonistic, come back to the cross. Go ahead, go to the next slide, please. Come back to the cross. Let me ask you, did you deserve the death of God's Son to pay your debt of sin? Did you? No, absolutely not. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. It was at the cross in this place of grace we discovered the proper way to interact with everyone else, no matter what their sinful persuasion may be. The gospel of grace gives us no other choice. Secondly, if you are fearful and anxious, the wonderful work of Jesus on the cross should bless your soul. Let me give you some more words from Jesus. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, said Jesus Christ. And when we come by faith, In simple trust in the person of Christ alone, the grace of God lavishes on us so much. You have been received and made a child of God, given forgiveness and his righteousness, all as a gift of his grace. And you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you will allow the Holy Spirit to manifest and control your life, the result of the Holy Spirit in our lives is anger, right? Indifference, right? fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You have that, believer. 
you have the resident Holy Spirit within you. Allow the Holy Spirit to let you enjoy the good gifts of God and then allow the Holy Spirit to control your heart. Do not be anxious in these days. But you say, Pastor Bill, it's the end of the world. It's been the end of the world since the day of Paul and Peter. It really has been. That's how they talked. Oh, Jesus is coming at any moment. Yes, he is. And we're this much closer now. Yes, it is. It's always been the end of the world as it is now. And it will be tomorrow, lest Christ come back. So if you're angry, look to the cross and be humbled by the goodness and grace of God. If you're fearful, look to the cross and realize what God has done on your behalf and all that he hopes to do in you. Now, I just want to say this, and I will close with these words. The gospel is not only for our personal use to take care of our anger and to deal with our fear. The gospel is not just to help us overcome the power of sin and by God's grace also the penalty of our sin when we first came to him. But the gospel is the reason we're here. You're not here to have a nice boat. You're not here to build a bigger house and to have a nicer kitchen. You're not here to have a BMW. You're not here for all those reasons. Christ left us here for a purpose, and the purpose is the gospel. It really, really is. And as this decision has come out, there have been two basic responses to the issue of of marriage between uh, two men and two women, that kind of a thing. So the responses have been along these lines. There have been those who have responded with truth, and there are those who have responded only with grace. And those who respond only with truth are what I would call, and I I was from this camp, so I can speak about us, what I used to be anyway. These are the fighting fundamentalists. Yeah, we got the truth, and they're all sinners. Yeah, they are. Look in the mirror. So are we. But the truth does this. The truth says we're going to put up all these statements. We're going to barricade our church. We're going to put this up and say, don't come here. This is not your place. Stay away. And we're going to fight this, and we're going to throw stones over the wall because their leper's getting too close, and we're going to keep them away from us. This is what truth says, and this is what truth does. But grace does not build walls. Grace builds bridges. That's what grace does. So a response of truth ignores grace. But on the other side of the issue is what I would call laissez-faire liberal. Oh, it's all love. Love wins. Woohoo! We're all good. Yeah! The fighting fundamentalists are modern-day preppers. We're holding on till Jesus comes, and if we can all just endure a little longer, we know he'll be back. Over here, the liberals are what I would call spiritual adulterers. Everything's fine. Do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. You see, it's all about grace. Both responses are wrong. The truth is this. We are called to live and love like Jesus. And Jesus, according to the Bible in John chapter 1, was full of grace. And he was full of truth. And manifesting grace and truth, he showed us how to walk and live in a sinful world. The truth of the matter is, yes, it is sin. It is condemned by God. And unless a person comes into a relationship with Christ, that sin, along with all other sin, will be ultimately condemned. So we need to be truthful. 
but we also need to be gracious. And we need to move forward in love to share this message of the gospel of God's grace with those who need to hear it in spite of what their background may be, in spite of what their proclivities in life may be. They deserve the right to hear the message that saved our souls. This is the hard place to live. It's so much easier to be over here. Oh, just throw rocks at them. So much easier to be over here. Oh, it's all good. When you do the hard work of walking in that place of grace and truth, they'll throw rocks at us. And if you live in this tough place of grace and truth, they'll condemn us. But this is the point of balance that honors the truth of Scripture and the the life of Christ. And if you want to honor the Lord with your response to those around us who need Jesus Christ, you will learn to live in this difficult point of balance. It is the ethical middle. It's a tough place to walk. It's not an easy thing to do. That's what makes it so scary. Because now, for many of us, for the very first time, we're going to have to learn to walk in the Spirit. We've heard about him. (laughs) We've seen excesses about him. But the reality is there are no specific rules as to how to do this. It requires dependence on God, prayer, walking with him, asking for wisdom, and leaning into the body of Christ saying, how do I do this in a way that honors God? How do I do this in a way that draws them out? How do I do this? Help me. This is the message of the gospel. We must take it to others. We began this time by talking about we need a new revolution. A revolution of the gospel of grace. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he not only breaks or deals with the penalty of our sin by dying for us on the cross. Thank you that he not only breaks the power of canceled sin in our lives and allows us to overcome those those sinful proclivities that seem to hold us. But thank you also that the gospel of Jesus Christ is really the key to the needs of our culture. Our culture does not just need... Uh, mandates our culture needs grace and love and truth and you've given us that message help us as we leave here today to have a sense of the leading of the holy spirit in our hearts and our minds in jesus christ's name father and all god's people said if today you feel the spirit moving in your heart and you've never made that decision